This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. Welcome to episode 69 of Talking Dirty. Over at East Ruston, old vicar is looking very smart in his blue tones. This uh, rather chilly November day, we have Alan Edward Herbert Gray, our happy and very handsome horticulturalist. Well, over in Cambridgeshire, I mean, it's a lovely sunny day here. You're oh. looking at a picture of sunshine, <laughs> your orange top, or is, or is it a whole piece? I don't know. Um, we have Thordis Maria Sophia Fredrickson. And joining us from his brand new no-name nursery, we have got Steve Edney, formerly of the Salutation, basically gets everywhere, RHS herbaceous committees, uh, loads of talks and stuff. Before we get stuck into the plant, Steve, what's your middle name? I'm afraid it's nothing as exciting as many people's. It's Paul. Uh, I, I think my parents must have... Uh, well, if you're anything like me, actually, we, one of my daughters doesn't even have a middle name because we just couldn't agree on one for her. So she has a double barreled first name instead. Oh, uh, good. But, uh, but so Stephen Paul, uh, some religious connotations there, perhaps. What is your sort of backstory with plants? How far back do we go? I've, so I've, I've watched a, a few of your podcasts uh, and really enjoy them. And um, when I hear people talking about how they you know, their first memory of growing a plant, you know, they were four years old. For me, it just didn't work like that. I had no interest whatsoever in, I love the natural world and I love being outdoors. And uh, it was only when I got to, uh, I suppose about 12 or 13, that I started to take a real interest in gardening, often actually because I was forced to by my grandparents, both sets of grandparents, one had a small holding, uh, and one was a very keen allotment tier. So during summer holidays, I, I had no choice but to get stuck in. If I was on the farm, it was up at four o'clock. And if I was in uh, the house and we were going to the allotment, then it was jamming and chutneying and preserving our way through the summer and growing. Uh, and uh, they were both keen growers, uh, my, my granddads and, and Nan's a little as well, but um, very much traditional, you know, they were at the, in the kitchen quite often, uh, <laughs> barking various orders. Um, but I guess it was um, when I really went to college. And so this is testament to how important it is actually to find really good, passionate plants people to have around you, is that I went to horticultural college because I really didn't know what to do with myself. And my nan said, well, you love being outdoors why not you know go and study horticulture you never know it might stick and if it doesn't you know you can do all kinds of things with your life what's the point of having a mind if you can't change it and so she said go along and when years later I said to her why um you know why did you push me into becoming a gardener she said well you just had so much energy son I just wanted to keep you out of prison <laughs> I said, thanks Nan um it was a bit of a rough upbringing. I, I grew up at the edge of a, of a council estate in Margate. It was a very deprived, quite desperate place. Uh, and so the last thing on most people's minds was gardening for pleasure. It was much more about, um, you know, the day-to-day, -day, you know, 
problems of what am I going to eat tonight? And there was a bit of that going on uh, growing up in the 80s in Margate and um, a and, and very poorly educated area as well. So it was it was an assault on the senses, if, if I'm honest. And uh, and so going to Horticultural College was just this wonderful release. I I'd hated school and um, and I don't I still don't really like being told what to do. And that's just that's just the way I made. And uh, and so to go to Horticultural College and suddenly discover a, a love of learning uh, was just amazing. And, and I can still I've still got on my shoulders my different lecturers, my botany lecturer, Priscilla Bailey and, and, and one of my horticultural lecturers, Janet Bryan, old school horticulturalists. They were probably in their 60s when I was there in the in the early 90s, in 92. And, uh, you know, there's all these sort of things in my ear. You shouldn't do it like this. You shouldn't do it. be careful now. You're, you're doing this at the wrong time. You know you are. <laughs> so, so in some ways, as, as my gardening career has advanced, um, I've had to unlearn some of those old school techniques that I, I learned initially. But what a wonderful foundation. And that and that was 16. And it was a um, it, it was um, an opportunity to you know spread my wings and actually discover the world beyond Margate, which was, <laughs> which was lovely. And I mean, Alan, we've talked about it so many times, the importance of people, possibly a bit like you, to inspire people and to pass on knowledge. I mean, we talked about it with the Young Propagator Society and, and getting all of those sort of meetups and talks and, and articles and stuff online so that you can have that passing on of not only the knowledge, but the enthusiasm. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think there's, I think it's really, really important. And I think if there's a spark of interest there um, and you, you're speaking to the right kind of people, it will ignite. This chap very kindly said to me, I mean, he's only 16. I watched a podcast with you talking about the ebony tree. I've got a rooted cutting. I'll send it to you. So I said, thank you very much. It'd be wonderful. And, and I told him about the Young Propagator Society. And um, when the plant arrived, it was a lovely handwritten note in it, which that's unusual today. <laughs> a nice handwritten note, you know, and it actually said, oh, by the way, I'm now a member of the Young Propagator Society. So they, you know, <laughs> that's how it works, I think. And I love the, I love the way that Steve just said something which um, strikes a chord with me and how you have to unlearn certain things <laughs> because, you know, at the end of the day, if a person is creative enough, you'll do it your way. And whether that be the right way or the wrong way, sometimes it works better than so-called the right way. Um, sometimes it doesn't. But I mean, that's life. Life is a series of compromises, <laughs> as my husband Graham is frequently reminding me. <laughs> well, the, the hard thing having a partner who is also a gardener is that the two of us are obsessed. So it's it's hard to rein each other in. It's, <laughs> it's almost just a yes every time. <laughs> Do you have very much the same vision when it comes to gardening? It seems like you do when we sort of hear your exploits, but so often people diverge on certain things. Do you have that? Oh, I, I honestly, Thordis, if you were in our house sometimes, you would think we don't like each other. Uh, <laughs> it, the, the, the arguments are passionate and they are uh, determined. <laughs> All I can say is that we do have... We have our own minds about gardening. What also doesn't help is that um, Louise was a mature student, but she was one of my students at Salutation. That's how we met. It was, a, for me, a, you know, a garden of love. Um, I, I was always excited to have students amongst my team. And so right from day one at Salutation, 
we always had at least one student, if not two or three at any one time. Uh, and Louise came along and really challenged me. She was already a very keen gardener, but also a very astute mind. And also as a gardener, it's quite important to have a good memory, uh, which I don't claim to have because I really don't have the best memory. Um, Lou has this incredible memory for everything. And of course, that's a huge asset when you're a gardener. Um, so, so yeah, we, we really do disagree on some things, but we also share a common love of so many uh, plants uh, and, and actually the natural world as well. So, um, you know, but bird life, insects, you name it, frogs. If something twitches or moves in a bush, we're both there what, watching. What, what, what is it? What, do, you know, can we get a picture of it? Out comes one of the books, a natural history book or something or a, a reptile book. And, and we're trying to find out what it is because neither of us came to be experts in, in, in those fields. So often you're not sure what, what you're looking at. But a garden that is rich and diverse is something we're always aiming for. And that's not just plants. That's people. That's insects. That's mammals. That's, that's everything. That's life. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're absolutely right. I agree with that wholeheartedly. You know, you talk about how you uh, I, I tell everybody that when Graham and I are making decisions about the garden, we have debates. <laughs> and they can become quite heated at times but you know the end result is that you're playing bat and ball with somebody and you do get that end result and it's much more refined nearly every time than either his or mine you know it's the coming together of two things and it just honing the idea and getting it out there um and it does work i mean it's, as it says on the coat of arms above our postman's gate the motto says concilio et labore um, which means by counsel and by labour, which I further interpret as by counsel and bloody hard work, because that's how the garden was made. <laughs> well, I couldn't agree more. You know, mm. Lou has certainly done that for me. The two of us always get the best out of something because we go backwards and forwards with it until we've refined it. The perfect. Yeah, yeah perfect. Yeah. And your, your love of the natural world with your um, no-name nursery, you're fully organic. And I know that making sure you're sort of planting for pollinators and for wildlife is, is very much at the heart of what you do. Yeah, um, I, you know, so right from day one, back as a, a fresh-faced 16-year-old gardener, uh, I, I was being taught to use all these different chemicals and potions, and I hated it. Right from the moment I started, I didn't agree with it. I didn't like it, it but it was a bit kooky to say, oh, no, no, we're not going to do that at all organic gardening and kind of any sort of sustainable gardening and permaculture just wasn't spoken about at, at Horticultural College in, in, nine, in the early 90s, certainly not at the college where I was at, at Hadlow. It was all about processes and procedures and plans uh, and, uh, and techniques. And I, and I guess it's because there's only so much time you have and the subject is vast. What do you hone in on? Um, I'm thankful to say that that now organic gardening or at least considerate gardening uh, is, is right at the top of, of the list from, for so many colleges. But when I became head gardener at Salutation, we are in, uh, we, we're in East Kent. Uh, the Salutation is right by a river that empties into the mouth of the sea. So we're quite close to the water table. We've got lots of migrating birds to us. It's a rich haven, the whole area. And the last thing I wanted to do was start causing pollution by artificially feeding and start spraying plants as part of a spraying program. Ugh. Uh, okay, 
sometimes it's really frustrating when something just um, just seems to be continually attacked. And we look for ways of dealing with that biologically, uh, organically, culturally. And if we and if we really can't solve that problem, we just stop growing the plant. Do you know, there are loads of plants out there that will do the same job as the plant that you're struggling with. All you've got to do then is learn what plants might work for you instead. And I guess this is where you get the divergence amongst gardeners about what plants work and where and which ones are the best, because it's really personal. For us, we're in East Kent, 21 inches of rain a year, some of the highest sunshine hours anywhere in the country, very similar to, to Alan's uh, area, because we're on that East Coast as well. He's just a little yeah. further up. And uh, light, silty soils. So it's like living in the Mediterranean down here. It, it's only 17 miles from where I'm sat to Calais, yet it's 50 miles to my own county town. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Well. <laughs> and I mean, obviously, Alan's always talking about the wonders of his climate and his uh, situation. Not always perfect for everything if you want to grow a Himalayan blue poppy or something, but uh, perfect for so many things. Um, and I, I know you've been doing, having all kinds of fun. This extraordinary long border you've, you've put together. Oh, I can't tell you how exciting it is. It's not right that a grown man can get so excited almost <laughs> about, about plants and about designing his own garden. It's, um, it, it's my dream. It always has been and lose as well. Uh, for the first time in my career, we, we managed to buy a, a bit of land very quietly a few years ago and just start, it was just a field and we just wanted to build a garden from nothing our way, not inheriting anything, not feeling encumbered by anyone or anything and not having to do what anybody else wants for the first time. It's incredibly liberating. As a head gardener, you are often satisfying other people's needs. Uh, and that's quite right. But for the first time, we got the opportunity to do whatever we wanted. And, you know, to begin with, we were almost stumped. <laughs> Because how do you narrow down all of your horticultural wants? Well, actually, you don't. You probably end up with 30 acres like that. <laughs> <laughs> but at the moment, we're starting with three. <laughs> and I love well, I, I know the feeling, Steve, because when we, when we bought extra land to join to our garden here, it was a vast field and we trudged across it. I can remember trudging across it one winter's day and it was cold and very wet and all the rest of it. And we looked at each other and said, what the hell are we going to do with all this? Um, now I wander around with a crate full of plants and think, where am I going to put them? <laughs> it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous, really. But there you go. That's, oh, it's, it's wonderful. You know, having a garden, it's um, having a garden that is yours. It's incredibly empowering. You know, you suddenly you're you're the master of your own destiny in that space. And it's exactly what you want from it. I can appreciate how you must have felt being a head gardener as to being. And I appreciate that that one word you just said, liberated. Because I don't have to go to somebody or a committee or the or the, or the head honcho that lives in the house and say, look, what I'd like to do is this. What do you think? And even if they fundamentally agree with you, if they're the sort of people that. Um, shall we say, a certain level of intelligence. They, they want to put their stamp on it somehow or other. So it really never becomes yours. But now you're, as you say, you're liber liberated. I want to experiment. I want to play. And I want to get out and get on. Yeah, I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. And we do. Yes, absolutely. And my long border, 
is testament to that. It's 100 metres long. It's six metres deep. We've planted 435 different perennial groups into it. There are roses, there are subshrubs, there are evergreen perennials, there are small trees and um, lots of, of herbaceous perennials and, uh, and with a real lean towards the autumn. So it really doesn't start to do its thing until uh, June, really, and, and, and right into the autumn, into the seed heads, because I adore seed heads. And I just think there's so much colour. We had, we had a drone image taken um, about a week ago and we had the same drone chap. He's coming every year and he comes at the same time each year so that we can get all these lovely shots, aerial shots of how the site is progressing. And the long border last year really didn't exist. We planted it in lockdown. So I lost my job in the January, 2nd of January, Happy New Year. Uh, so to lockdown then as well, a national lockdown, we just hid on our bit of land, me and Lou, for an entire summer and just thought, right, that's it. Let's, so we called it the lockdown long border because we planted 20,000 perennials on this border over a few months every day. I mean, it was a drudge, just the two of us. It was, uh, and we planted two and a half thousand hedging plants and uh, to compartmentalize the site. And we planted avenues of trees all over the site. We planted two and a half thousand trees and hedging plants all across the site. Um, because it was just a field and we needed to, to create rooms, if you like, to give a different feel to different spaces. But all just for us, the, the site is going to be the nucleus for our no-name nursery. Um, no name because we can't agree on a name. <laughs> <laughs> they go back to that compromise. Compromise sometimes suits no one. And, and actually, quite often when you're selling plants, people, they, they remember their plants and they get their label with their plant and they research their plant for their garden. Where did we buy that? Can you remember? No, I can't remember. Oh, well. So no name nursery. It really doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the things I think that you will notice that when you have a flat site uh, that's empty of anything. And the, the one ingredient that, well, that I found here that was missing was height. There was nothing to relate to. No trees or anything like that. The trees that we got in our woodland garden. I mean, they're well, I, some eucalyptus that we took. Um, I sowed the seed in 1991. We took them out because they got rather too large. They were something like 70 feet tall. I mean, they had got in, in that time since 1991, so big. Um, and they- God, here's hoping. Yeah. <laughs> one of them blew down. Well, one thing I would say to you is if you do grow eucalyptus, I would sort of keep an eye on them because I think pollarded, they're, uh, they're quite good. If you, you know, to whatever height you want, um, because they, you know, there's a very fine line between when they're dealable with and when they're not. And when they're not dealable with, it's much more expensive because you can't do it yourself. <laughs> well, well, now, now there's something actually I'm pretty lucky at because I, when I finished studying horticulture, I went to the dark side and I studied arboriculture at Meris Wood. So I'm, right. I'm, a, and actually, even recently, I thought, no, I'm, I'm definitely off the tools now. I'm too past it. I'm, um, I don't want to climb trees anymore with a chainsaw dangling off my belt. Yeah, last week I was in a tree dangling you know in a harness with a chainsaw on my belt and I thought oh I do you know it reminds you how alive you know you can feel sometimes you never live quite so fully as when you gamble with your own life everything feels a little more exciting <laughs> <laughs> on the whole I'm I'm past the tree surgeon days but um, you're quite right Adam we have planted a number of eucalyptus because I 
I adore them. I think they're wonderful. But with our tree collection at, at, um, at the land, we just call it the land, see, because we're so imaginative that um, we have the no-name nursery let, at I, wait, let, let, me just, let me just tell you this. When we first bought extra, extra land here, we called it... <laughs> We called it the new land. So you call it the land, we called it the new land. So, <laughs> <laughs> so time for some show and tell, though we probably should allude to the fact that things are quite clearly a little different. We're all wearing different clothes. I have a dog on my lap. My hair's a different colour. Um, what happened when we were recording the first half of this podcast is, well, Alan, would you like to explain what happened? Well, I should do, I suppose, shouldn't I? Because it came from, from my end, my neck of the woods. But I think what it was is a, an enthusiastic um, farm worker with an enormous plough on the back of his tractor somehow managed to get entangled with an overhead cable of electricity. And we just flicked and went down, which was an enormous headache because dear old Steve Edney, dare I say, not old really, but <laughs> dear Steve Edney had been out and he'd got masses and masses of plants all ready for his show and tell. And, inter uh, you know, he just got interrupted. So my apologies on behalf of Eastern Electricity, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> so three Shocking. days later, if any of the show and tell looks perhaps a little bit past its best, you, uh, you are absolutely excused, Steve. But uh, what did you want to share? What should we start with? We, uh, well, you know, I, I think we were going to start with seed heads because uh, it was a, a favourite of mine. Uh, and I, I think I was telling everyone about um, my display at Chelsea in 2019 of seed heads, which was a lot of fun to do. Um, so I thought I'd start with, well, this is our spotter line lutea. The seed is actually still in um, the heads. So these Aspodoline, uh, it's uh, a member of the red hot poker family, uh, but spring flowering, it dries to the most amazing seed head and, uh, and it persists as well. So one of the things that, that we've been doing for a long time is doing uh, dried seed arrangements in the country house in salutation and at home. We quite like them, they're, they're dead easy and you only really have to throw them away once they, um, once they start getting dusty. <laughs> Us gardeners are always playing with that fourth dimension of time, aren't we? It's the thing we can't escape. Nothing stays static for long. And I guess that includes the seed heads. But when you arrange them, they last longer than, than flowers quite often. And, and that's quite appealing to me. And when we went to Chelsea, we wanted to do this arrangement of seed heads um, to make a border look like it was in the depth of winter. We even went so geeky to the point where we um, stripped off actual leaves and we dried them separately so that we could use them as the leaf litter below each group of plants. <laughs> that, that's how geeky it got with, with our Chelsea display. Uh, and as Fodderline Lutea was one of the real stars, I, um, I just think it holds and persists even on the plant outside. So that's the seed head, but um, let me show you the actual plant because I've got them in pots. Um, they love hot, dry conditions, poor soil, and they, they flower in the late spring. Then they produce a seed head, which is really like a small gobstopper that's green. Um, it's a yellow flower that followed by this gobstopper and then it dries and they turn into sort of a skeleton, which cracks open to produce these triangular seeds. The idea I think is so that where they grow in their native environment, which I have to say, I don't know, Medi Turkey, Mediterranean, it's so that they can um, fall off the plant and drop and hook into 
crevices and rock in amongst uh, scree and then root themselves. They're a devil. I don't know if either of you have ever tried growing them from seed, but they're a, they're a real, have you, have you had much success, Alan? Not, not huge, great success. I, I tend to buy small plants if I'm buying it because um, they don't sort of seem to want to germinate regularly with me. Yeah, no, I found exactly the same thing, that the whole stratification period for them seems to be really tricky. And they, they're so easy from division that, that why would you? Actually, if you've got yeah. one plant and it's successful, uh, they're so quick to, to bulk up. But so as you head um, into the late summer, uh, the seed heads are formed really nicely and, and they can be left alone if, if you want to, because we like to, to leave them for the winter picture. Um, but below those seed heads, you get this glaucous gray green foliage, uh, like one of the Festuca glaucus or something that forms um, a, as a rosette that persists most of the winter unless it's incredibly cold and then it, it might really disappear underground. Uh, and then all through the spring, you've got this lovely glaucous foliage uh, as it heads towards flowering. So it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful plant for chalky conditions or light silty soils. It loathes being on heavy soils. I saw it once at Wisley on clay and it was a very sorry looking specimen. I, I hadn't seen it again since there. Here we have a whole border that dies with dignity. It's the autumn border and it's got sedums and asters and cortadarias and miscanthus and everything that just dies with a good skeleton goes in there. And I think that it looks at its very best in January, really, if you can get a little bit of sparkly frost on it, it reblooms. It looks fantastic. Yes. Oh, I mean, I love I love seed heads in the winter and I think they're so overlooked by yeah. gardeners. They're so quick to want to tidy everything up. So I wanted to start that conversation at Chelsea with gardeners. Um, and also it was a bit of shock value, of course, because everyone's trying to force plants <laughs> on into flower. And I've stepped back into the winter, uh, which, um, which really did take some people by surprise. And it was an odd one. Um, and uh, actually, I'll, I'll just mention that the Asphodeline lutea definitely forms the better of the seed heads in the asphodels. Asphodelus alba and Labernica. I would say Labernica actually is a, is a more graceful plant and flowers about a month later but it doesn't have that wonderful seed head. So it, it does miss something for me. But, um, but one of the plants at, at Chelsea, which got everyone going was, oh, yeah. was Allium Schubertii. And I, I have to hold it behind me so you can actually <laughs> see it. I mean, it's, it's vast, absolutely vast. Uh, and uh, it comes from a bulb, it's really short Allium. Uh, so it's only a couple of feet tall, but it is like a firework going off. Uh, it's enormous. Uh, it's just, I mean, this plant, when it's in flower or as a seed head, it's, it's plant porn, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's incredible. I, I adore it. And you can actually use it as a Christmas decoration. You know, give it a bit of a spray up if you like that kind of thing. I have to say I'm a big fan of a bit of bling. Uh, and I quite like the idea that it's not made of plastic. Uh, so, so you can bring a bit of bling into the house without feeling bad for the environment. and. Um, and so I, I had this on the corner of, of our display at, uh, at Chelsea and dead opposite was uh, Jacques Armand's stand and they had the plant in flower. And I did think to myself, what am I doing? Uh, one or two people said to me, oh, you're very brave. This is interesting. This is the first time I've ever seen something like this. Well, we know at Chelsea, brave means stupid. 
Um, yeah, the times in my life when people have told me I'm being brave, they normally mean stupid. Yeah, I know. It's the Unwise. Very, the very English, very polite way of saying, oh, I'm not sure that's a good idea, young man. But, but they, I mean, the, their size, I don't think I can accommodate them. If I bring them over, you'll see my love of uh, seed heads in the house because my Christophiais are in here. Um, with all their seeds still in them, which always makes me happy. They'll probably got there. Yeah, there are some on the windowsill. Um, but yeah, I, I love Christophia. I've always hankered after um, Schubertia, but I'm just not sure because it's such a presence in my little front garden. I, I'm not sure I'll be able to accommodate it. It's a very large bowl. And also it soaks terribly if the soil isn't really hot in the summer. For it. So it needs um, a period of intense dry heat so it wants to be quite close to the surface when you grow it and you want to grow it in a place where um, the ground can be bare and bake hot and dry above it. Uh, and that's that's what we found to be the key to success with, with some bulbs. And at Salutation, I have a small obsession with bulbs. We planted about 130,000 of them in that garden while I was there. And the, uh, the, really, for me, they held the spring show together while everything was building. There were other instances of loveliness from herbaceous plants, but it was all about the bulbs in the spring. Just this succession of them coming month after month from January until June. And actually even further on right through the year, almost every month of the year, there was something that was a bulb flowering. But in the spring, um, so just so many bulbs and the alliums were just amazing. Uh, right across the board, but particularly with Schubertii, they need to become really hot and dry um, for the summer. Otherwise, they won't set that flower, flower bud for the following year. What, what we actually found as well is that, you know, it's sometimes it's a it's a bit of a tall ask for such a, you know, even though it's a large bulb, for such a huge flower to be formed each year. So we sometimes found it would settle into a two or three year flowering cycle. So it would produce foliage and we just have to accept it was um, it was a rather awkward looking leak in the border for, for a year and no flower. Uh, but we knew hopefully that was then building towards something stronger. Uh, and that was just ph phenomenal. And uh, and with the seed heads, I've got I've got a, I've got a few more. I've got um, this is sorghum nigrum. We've grown a lot of um, sorghum over the years. Uh, it's the fourth most important cereal crop in the world. It is very tolerant of dry, hot, difficult conditions. But sorghum nigrum has these wonderful black seeds, but also the seed head itself is, is surprisingly neat and, and columnar. Uh, looks like sweet corn as it's growing. So we sow it in, in March. Uh, we planted out, now we planted out, rather than blocks like sweet corn, um, we have this, um, this thing where we play with summer hedges in our, because we're in East Kent, uh, really high sunshine hours and very dry, uh, but I want the light to filter in into the vegetable garden during the winter when the, low, when the light is so low and the sun's so low. Uh, but in the summer, what I actually want in order to be able to grow lots of salad crops is a bit of protection from the heat in the middle of the day. So we started using all kinds of plants that would only have a presence in the summer. So summer hedges, and we used um, cannas uh, as summer hedges, the huge, um, you, know, you know, the um, Musafolia grande 
Uh, and uh, now apparently the tubers on that are edible, but I don't fancy giving it a try. I, there's too many other nice things to eat, I think. We'll leave that alone. Uh, it's interesting we, you, may, you mentioned using plants as hedges because at, um, at the nursery in South Norfolk, they use the very tall miscanthus as, uh, as hedging between like fields, if you like. And that really does work well. I mean, at the end of the year, they just cut it all back to the ground and then up it comes the following year. Yeah, I, I think it's a great idea. I mean, you think um, how many hedges we've lost in fields uh, and what a good stabilising effect they have on sort of ambient temperatures and stopping erosions of different kind. They're, yeah. they're stopover spots for insects and invertebrates and, and birds. So, uh, so for me, the idea of having a summer hedge, uh, like, and, and if it's perennial, that's great, or whether it's annual, you know, the mm. concept is the same, isn't it? Yeah, it is. The, the only thing with the sorghum is that they have quite weak nodes. Uh, and yeah. so when we were, um, not while they're growing, but when you use it as a seed head, we found drying it no problem at all um, until we took it to Chelsea. And then we were in the humidity of the floral marquee uh, and a few things started to absorb a bit of moisture. And occasionally, <laughs> occasionally, because the seed was so heavy, you suddenly see <laughs> this sorghum seed head just suddenly drop out of the display. And you think, oh, God, please, please let this be over and let the judges come and do their thing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah sorghum is, um, is a wonderful seed head for arrangements. It's got a really uh, kind of silky fluidity to that seed head when you were sort of showing it off. That's poetic. It's so, uh, yeah, see, this is what I need. I need a bit more poet, uh, and it needs to be more of a poet. It is, it's very strokeable. Uh, <laughs> Steady. <laughs> uh, swiftly moving on uh, <laughs> to the Sinara. So, so um, the cardoons, this one, this is the, um, uh, the Chelsea physic form. So it's shorter. The thing that, the, bugs me about some cardoons is uh i've got the dixter form and it's it's absolutely ginormous and uh, you have to stake it with with really sizable tree stakes really to hold the stems up uh if you've got any kind of wind that that, uh, that gets to your garden but uh, the chelsea physic form uh, actually uh is only about four or five feet tall for us much spikier foliage we tried so many of the cardoons we've tried them from seed and we've we've um, bought people's selections just to experiment with them there's an enormous array uh, and there are a few different species we've grown flovescens as well uh, which we were sort of expecting to be yellow until i realized that the flovescens refer to the yellow spikes uh, on on the leaves not not actually to the color of the flower most of them are sort of a purpley mauve uh, and um, now if you one of the nice things about drying the Chelsea physic form as well as the seed heads reasonably small it's not too big it's about uh, in old money about three or four inches across but some of the um, the big cardoons can be you know, the edible ones for instance can you know can be 10 8 10 inches across they can they can be enormous uh, which is exactly what you want uh, if you're going to use those for seed heads you need to pick them a bit early and get some string around them to bind them. Otherwise they open up and they just kind of fall apart. Uh, and that's certainly what we found at, uh, at Chelsea. We, we found that because the humidity was so high, uh, we, um, we, we actually had to bind the heads and we had to leave the heads bound until the morning of, uh, of judging. And they opened by the end of the day virtually, which is quite nice because you've got those lovely soft seed heads 
dropping out and cascading through some of the other seed heads all the way to the floor like we'd done it on purpose it was wonderful <laughs> uh, and it was it was a happy accident that <laughs> it is amazing all the stuff that goes in behind the scenes binding flowers and seed heads and things it reminds me of um howard's nurseries when they were taking all their benton irises uh, for a display and i remember they were all bound up with i can't remember what but something you know all bound up and paper oh wool wool and paper well that's where i cut my teeth if you like was me and lou uh, we built the uh, display for Caillou, Richard Caillou, uh, of uh, the French Irish breeder at Chelsea. We, we built his display there for three years with uh, Sue and Harry Marshall from Irises of Sissinghurst, who grew them. We took them and, and displayed them uh, with a lady called Sophia, a real little team. It was great fun to do. And uh, yeah, I have to say, I'd take a living plant in flower over a seed head <laughs> to Chelsea any day of the week because um, the attrition rate was enormous from the seed heads that had fallen to bits on the journey. I, I got one of my gardeners uh, while we were trying to work out how to keep these seed heads in good order up for their journey into Chelsea. I, got, uh, I gave one of my gardeners instructions to go to Poundworld or Poundland and to, um, to kind of hover uh, around the aisle where all the ladies' hair products were. <laughs> I said, and then follow the girl who has gravity-defying hair and whatever hairspray she picks up, that's the one I want you to get because then we can spray the seed heads and help hold them intact for the journey. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I couldn't not mention um, the Papaver somniferum, the opium poppy. It's just the most amazing. You could sit there just studying uh, seed heads for I could anyway for hours and I have for hours I adore them uh, and and clustered together in big groups you can see why people uh, you know it, I was at Wisley and you can see why people buy these they were selling them for for quite vast amounts of money actually it was it was quite a shock it made me think I'm I'm missing a beat here I could make some more money out of these seed heads um, and one last well, well yes second to last um Honesty. I mean, the old fashioned honesty, the silver dollar, uh, Lunaria annua, the most wonderful biennial, uh, love biennials. And uh, and this is this is actually a couple of years old now, this one. And I I, I know you can clean them off and, and peel them apart and get the seeds out so they go even more silvery. But I quite like this yellowy tone that they have. And you can actually see the seed in them. I, I still think that's wonderful. Uh, I also really like, and, and I wanted to bring them both to show you the difference, is that this is, uh, so this is Lunaria annua, which has a, a, a almost completely circular, well, almost circular um, seed head, and Lunaria rediviva, which is the perennial honesty, and, uh, and it has an elliptical seed head, so you can actually always tell the difference if you're looking at them in a border, uh, and actually if you, if you have a little scruff around in the soil, you'll often see um, big chunky buds uh, for next spring's um, flower because they flower in the spring uh, this icy blue flower uh, absolutely wonderful and if you're lucky they'll they'll set seed a bit um, or maybe a lot if you're really lucky but <laughs> for us we get a little bit of self-seeding uh, very valuable for dry shade uh, and we are really dry uh, and uh, we've got a woodland garden which has a lot of conifers that stretches down a huge big flint wall which faces west 
So it really only gets a little bit of sun in the morning, huge amounts of conifers. Uh, and so dry shade under conifers is some of the hardest places to, uh, to garden in. And uh, Lunaria rediviva uh, is, is actually better than Lunaria annua, the, the biennial honesty for growing in that condition for us. Ah, oh, that's worth knowing. Now, final seed head. And this is a fresh one taken off of the, the plant uh, the other day. And um, this is uh, Aryngium pandanifolium physic purple. It's the most wonderful perennial. It's an evergreen perennial. Uh, and surprisingly, now most people think of Aryngiums as being dry lovers. And so did I, uh, and they are in the most part. But um, pandanifolium comes from Argentina and it follows lots of marshy river edges. And so it actually prefers really damp soil. Now, and I wondered why I just had the species to begin with and uh, and the seed head hasn't got anything on the lovely dark purple seed heads uh, of the physic purple. But the seed head, I would say, is probably larger, a little shyer about flowering and entirely shy about flowering uh, in my garden when I put it uh, in a border that was southeast facing under whole oaks, <laughs> thinking, well, it will love being there, really free drained. And it sat there and sulked for three years. Until I, until I moved it into a, a cooler and damper spot where it's rewarded me with a number of flowers. And then when I saw it at uh, Great Dixter, the, the Chelsea Physic form, which seems to be better at producing regular seed heads each year, very late in the season. So it, you can often be looking at it in September and thinking, oh, it's not gonna flower this year. And then all of a sudden they erupt out of this evergreen crown, which is, it's really sword-like leaves, and they can be a little vicious uh, <laughs> if, if you go into them a bit too strongly or you're not looking where you're going and, and it's at the edge of a path. Um, quite a good architectural plant uh, for either as a stop plant when you want to sort of train, change uh, your planting groups perhaps to transition or on the corner where you want to funnel people in one direction because they won't walk through it That's, <laughs> or they only do that once. That's for certain. Um, and, uh, and, and at Dixter, it was growing on that heavy clay uh, on their long border, and it was absolutely full of seed heads. It, it was just amazing. That so is that's such a showstopper. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. I don't know if either of you grow this. Uh, Alan, have you got this? Yeah. Yes, I do. And I, I'm, I'm not going to contradict you in any way, but all I'm going to tell you is that it grows in the desert. <laughs> oh. <laughs> My theory, when you were talking, Steve, my theory is that the desert is covered with gravel and you always find that it's moist underneath gravel. Yes. Because of condensation and all the rest of it, you know, and I think that's the reason. But we've had to take it out now because it became a nuisance because it self-seeded everywhere because all of those little seedlings, they blow around and scatter and they pop down between the gravel and they germinate. And <clears throat> Graham got rather cross with it, so I had to move it. Do you have any spare seedlings, Alan? No, I've only got one in a pot and it's <laughs> enormous. It is enormous. And I've allocated a spot for it. <laughs> well, you are lucky. We haven't had our self-seed at all yet. I'm, I'm yeah, well, terribly jealous. Isn't that the way? <laughs> the self-seeding for you and anybody else that's listening to us. I mean, if you want plants to self-seed, put a nice little mulch of gravel around the mother plant because gravel always, always produces self-sown seedlings. And it's interesting, isn't it, that 
you can think you know a plant and then you see it in all the, the, the conditions that you've just said are the exact opposite of what you've just said. They haven't read the book. Very frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what, that's plants, isn't it? And it yeah, it goes, plants so, don't read books. <laughs> and, and, you know, it obviously has a high degree of drought tolerance um, because we've planted it at the back of uh, a, a tree line, the species Pandanifolium. We planted it at the back of our long border. We mulched it heavily and just left it be. But it's by no means in a in a boggy or damp spot. So and it's holding its own very nicely. It's gone less green and much more intensely grey green. Uh, so I find when things are quite drought stressed, they their colours intensify toward you know the silvers become more silver and then the greys become greyer and bluer, uh, and uh, and we get a lot of that. Uh, at, at, um, at both of our gardens and at home actually a bit so that's that's seed heads that's pretty uh, and, comprehensive and on the seed head front <laughs> it's you know it's a couple I, it, the problem is reining yourself in isn't it um, what to talk about now um, lots of people some people do know lots of people don't know that I uh, I'm a huge tree fan because I trained as an arborist and uh, so I've always had an affinity with trees I adore them and uh, here's, uh, here's a, a new tree to my collection, a liquid amber. Uh, this is called uh, Penwood. And this is a, a, a new one. So, so at the land, we're planting a huge, diverse range of trees with all of the talk about um, climate change and shifting climates. And I've really witnessed this. In 17 years at Salutation, uh, we have watched so many things change in the garden and even to the point where there are plants uh, that that we used to think of conservatory plants or greenhouse plants that we now grow in sheltered spots outside we get dahlias self-seeding in the garden yeah um, it's incredible we never would have had that 20 years ago and and that's a very short period of time for these things to be changing so by having a really diverse range of trees um, we're kind of hedging all the bets and hoping that some of them make it into decent, mature trees in time. I'm a huge sucker for a liquid amber. There's a liquid amber called Warplston, named after the village where Meris Wood is, which was my college. And, uh, and so this one is Penwood, bred by um, Doug Harris in 1985 at uh, Penwood Nurseries in Hampshire. Uh, it was a seedling that was selected. Now, for, for me, when me and Lou, we went off walking through the Arboretum at Wisley, which I'm glad to say actually isn't, isn't frequented very often, uh, or it wouldn't, it, it's a lot less busy than other parts of Wisley <laughs> to go and hide amongst the trees at the back <laughs> of the orchard. <laughs> and I love that, but lots of liquid ambers back there. And um, so we could go and, go and have a look. And we've got one called Slender Silhouette in our own garden, which is an American cultivar, which is very columnar. Uh, even more so with a little bit of light snipping to keep it in, in nice and bushy and in, in good order because it's only three metres away from the house. And that, that always makes um, building surveyors twitch. They don't, they don't like trees near houses or near drains. Uh, uh, but the liquid ambers, we went and looked. So uh, we wanted to see the autumn colours and, and we've selected uh, autumn colours. I know Warpleston, for instance, has, is a cultivar selected because it reliably produces good autumn colours, these lovely maroons and bright reds. Penwood is very maroon, uh, almost black at times. 
uh, and that's why I particularly picked this one. But the styraciflua, just the species, it can be really hit and miss of the quality of their autumn colours. And if you want a big specimen tree because you're impatient and you can't wait, um, you really need to go and actually hunt that tree out in its autumn colour and just select it right there and then um, because of the autumn colour. Of course, moisture has a, has a bit to play and what the conditions are like in your individual garden. Um, but they range from that lovely buttery yellow right through to maroon and, and bright and bright, bright scarlet red. But I also love that um, that starry palmate leaf. Mm. Uh, I'm sucked in by the liquid amber. <laughs> <tribe>. I, can't, <laughs> I can't help it. So I wanted to share that one with you because the autumn, actually autumn's really hung on, hasn't it? I don't know if you've yeah. noticed. It's yeah. incredible this year. I'm so pleased. I'll tell you what else I've noticed, Steve, where we were walking around the garden. There's a chap who comes every week and does photographs. And we were talking about um, an acer called October Glory. Um, and it, it, it never colours up in October and it doesn't do its stuff until November. And this year it is exceptionally late. It still hasn't really quite got the huge amount of colour in it. It fir first of all goes yellow and then orange and then bright scarlet. And then as those leaves darken, they die and they fall. I mean, it's like a symphony. It's absolutely fabulous, building up to this great crescendo and suddenly, pow! <laughs> <laughs> I, so I couldn't agree more with you. I've, we've actually just selected it to go into uh, our jungle garden uh, on the land. Uh, so so we, we've been watching it for a few years. It keeps cropping up in gardens we've visited. And uh, me and Lou uh, were visiting uh, a nursery called Majestic, where they do some quite big specimen trees. And they had standards there and they were looking amazing. So, again, got sucked in, had no intention. I was buying trees for a client, <laughs> got sucked in. We bought Heptacodium and we, and we bought <laughs> October Glory. <laughs> yeah, so that's not bad. Going, not buying anything, walking out... <laughs> considerably lighter in the wallet. <laughs> You're making me feel good because I had a real splurge on some sale bulbs the other day, but it was really modest compared to that. <laughs> oh, God, no, and bulbs are another thing. Lou, Lou looks at me very, very sternly when I buy bulbs. She said, I don't mind you buying bulbs, but you are the one who has to plant them. She loathes planting <laughs> bulbs. Oh, she's looking at me now. She's <laughs> Well, I must uh, say, I'm not a massive fan every time I buy them because I am the one who'll be planting them. I always think, why am I doing this to myself? Why? Why? But there we go. <laughs> yeah, but That's it's the spring. <laughs> I'm just looking for, ah, here it is. I knew it was somewhere here. Um, my other, the other tree I, I, I bought, which is, uh, actually it's got its beginnings of its autumn color and, it, and it's a sort of translucent orange, this heart-shaped leaf, Poplar deltoides, and it's, um, now is it purple? Yes, it's purple tower. But the deltoides um, have the most phenomenal growth rate. I mean, they're, they're a bit terrifying. On the banks of the Mississippi, uh, they, they'll grow 10 feet a year. Uh, that, that's a tree, you know, 80 feet tall in, in, you know, eight or 10 years, which is incredible. Thankfully, um, the, the purple tower, because in the summer it has really dark purple foliage, uh, that obviously curbs its its ambitions to take over the world uh, and keeps it from getting too large. We actually coppice ours, so we keep it in the jungle so that we can get these enormous leaves 
Uh, and what we found, uh, we've been growing this for a number of years now. What we found actually is if you leave it to grow into a specimen tree, they're quite weak stems and poplars quite often are anyway. Uh, the stems are just snapping out left, right and centre on it anyway. And we've even had a couple of trees that have just leant over in the wind from where they're not particularly well rooted. So uh, I'm not sure how they cope in the, in the wild, but certainly uh, being coppiced uh, or stooled down to the ground means they produce 10, maybe even 15 feet of growth in a season if you're very lucky. And, uh, and the leaf size can, can be vast and this lovely heart-shaped leaf and the stems uh, are, are slightly winged. They're ribbed all the way down uh, which is another fascinating uh, part to them. And I just, I love the fact that they rustle. Uh, and so just this, it's a bit like bamboos. If you don't have water in your garden and you're looking for, for noise and stimulation from your garden through sound, well, uh, it's, it's not bad um, yeah. because the leaves are chattering against each other. <laughs> that is beautiful, that stem color. Yeah, the, so the whole silhouette of the thing is is lovely, and uh, and it's still holding its leaves. They're only just turning now, and they're taking on this this buttery orangey colour, and uh, and and a fascinating plant to uh, to stall and to watch just erupt out of the ground each year. Uh, and uh, I love, I'm, I'm at the moment, um, I've uh, I, I'm trying to work out exactly what to pair it with. So I've been through a few different things. Um, but nothing's really satisfied me. Uh, combinations and plant communities interest me the most. They're what really flick my switches. When, when me and Lou were first seeing each other, um, this is my partner, uh, I often keep a little notebook under the bed. At three o'clock in the morning, I'll wake up with something has gone in my mind. And I thought, oh, before I forget, pulled out my notebook, scribbling away. And um, she just looks, wakes up, looks across. What are you doing? <laughs> I've had this plant idea, it's brilliant. I don't want to forget it. You're mad. <laughs> 10 years later, she's just as mad as I am. <laughs> it's catching. <laughs> I, think, I think it might be. You certainly get sucked into the world of gardening and plants. It's the best kind of addiction you can have. Yeah. But that, they're my trees. I've got, because it's the autumn um, and I'm, I'm focusing on some some interesting and happy looking plants in November. This is a, a Pittosporum, so an, an evergreen, it's a large shrub, shrub slash small tree. This is Pittosporum eugenoides. And uh, the thing I love about the Pittosporum tribe is that, um, that, well, they're quite elegant, aren't they? And I mean, they're wonderful for flower arranging. They're multiple, multi-use. You can leave them and they'll grow almost like small trees. For us, evergreens that are incredibly drought tolerant, providing you can keep the north and northeasterly winds away from them that can burn them quite a bit. Um, Eugenoides as a species, we have trained a single trunk and then allowed it to canopy out uh, and, and we've thinned it so that it, in the jungle, it looks like a small tree. And in a jungle setting, having a few evergreens like bamboos and pittosporums, but this pittosporum, it's very large leaf to use an eugenoides compared to other species is, you know, three, four times the size, the leaves that, um, that, uh, that is it tenuifolium? Yes. Yes. That's it. Yeah. Uh, boy, I brought that out of the back of my memory from, from somewhere. Uh, <laughs> Incidentally, Steve, you just, you're talking about Pittosporum eugenoides. 
We used to grow Pythosporum eugenoides variegata in a flower pot in the conservatory and stood it outside for the summer, um, but we couldn't grow it outside in the winter. And now we can. And that's happened within the last 10, 15 years. Um, it's not been successful everywhere. I have to be very careful and choose a, a really sheltered spot. Um, but I've got one in my kitchen courtyard in a pot which is outside and it's just looking fantastic. And elsewhere in the garden, you know, they and they light the winter up. If you can get the low winter sun on that variegated foliage and that ver the fascinating thing I think about Pittosporum foliage is that it's shiny and light reflecting and cheerful. And lots of yeah. people don't take that into consideration thinking evergreen's an evergreen. Well, it's not. I mean, they vary and they, the, the Eugenoides has the lovely wavy leaves. Yes, and you're quite right. So many evergreens, if you're not careful, they can they can end up sucking light out of a space. Yeah. And it yeah. makes it feel quite oppressive at times. Yeah, it does. So it's back. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more with you. That love. I mean, you can see the light now, actually, uh, just backlighting it beautifully, lighting it up in that line midrib through the center. And you're right, that lovely wavy leaf. Mm -hmm. It's, um, yeah, it, it, it's a fascinating large shrub slash small tree uh, and, and one that it's taken a few years to establish but we are enjoying it more and more the bigger it gets uh, won't be long we'll be striking cuttings from it <laughs> so, semi-ripe cuttings that's what we're going to go for semi-ripe cuttings in july i think that's going to be our our the, where we're going to chance our arm um now while, while we're on the the climate change and uh, plants that seem to uh, be surviving outdoors much more easily. This is uh, a butylon nabob, Malvasi, uh, and so a nice clean. Um, it's a, it's an again, it's a heart-shaped leaf. Um, the Lavatera Malvasi family. I have to say, I've, I have a love-hate relationship with that family because Lavateras they grow literally out of walls uh, on the Isle of Thanet. And they grow like weeds in any forgotten bit of ground that's just wasteland. So growing up, I, my mind saw them as a plant uh, for a garden that was neglected. And it's hard to change your opinion of that about certain plants. But a butylon, this was a plant that you really could only grow, you know, in conservatories and, and greenhouses. I mean, look at that nabob. It is, it's blood red. Uh, and look at that wonderful anther in the center there isn't that just gorgeous uh, and the venation that, that's picking up which is just deeper around the petals and uh, and and so this you do have to pick a shelter spot for it we we're a, effectively a four acre walled garden which is where this came from at salutation and um uh, and we've used it at home against a wall so so sometimes they're very drought tolerant so if you've got a house where you've got a rain shadow where you've got the gutters and and the fascia and soffits and, and things perhaps aren't very successful and you don't mind something that's semi evergreen. So if it's very cold, it'll lose all its leaves, but, um, but it will scramble up the side of the wall very effectively. We've got a very similar one here on the south wall called Ashford Red, which is slightly brighter than Nabob. And I grow it next to the lemon tree outside and I don't protect either of them and they're absolutely fine. Mm. Yeah, a, a beast from the east. Um, you know, knocked an awful lot of plants uh, and, and it did defoliate, but uh, was back again. I mean, there were lots of times when I thought, oh, that's it. it it's had its day, um, but, but um, bounced back again. It, you know, it's incredibly resilient. 
Uh, and, uh, and you can see all those buds. I mean, oh, it's almost criminal to cut it off the plant. <laughs> <laughs> so many buds yet to come, but, but it was full of stems, all with flowers and all with clusters of sort of seven or eight flowers. Now, now thinking of that um, Malvasi family, here's a plant which is a, a bit newer to me. I've uh, been growing it for about three or four years. Um, Anesodontia El Rayo, again, Malvasi family. And, and it's almost um, hibiscus-like flowers, which I just think are fascinating. And unlike the abutilon, where it had that terminal flower cluster, the, uh, the, the Anesodontia has indeterminate flowering. So, so it just basically pops um, flower buds out of all of the leaf axles up and down the stems. And in the beast from the east, uh, it stopped it flowering for maybe a month, maybe not, not quite that long, but it had flowered continuously um, for nearly two years prior to that, which is absolutely incredible. And so if you're looking for a plant which could be a good anchor plant, um, it's a subshrub, so you can cut great big chunks out of it, um, it, it and it'll, but it'll be a shrub about six to eight feet tall. Uh, depending on your conditions, I've seen it vary enormously. The leaves have been quite small and it's been quite, um, quite airy and quite wavy. Uh, we've also seen it where it's obviously had a, a very happy time and it's had all the conditions it wanted. The leaves have been quite large and it's been quite stocky. Um, but uh, either way for me, it never needs watering. We planted it, we left it alone. Within a month it started flowering. And then it didn't stop flowering for two years until the beast from the east stopped it in its tracks. Uh, and, and it seems to be very, because a lot of Malvasi and the Lavateras, they don't like um, being cut back very hard, but you seem to be able to take big chunks out of this um, with, with reasonable, you know, with, you know, without having to worry that you're going to kill off the plant. Uh, because that, I've learned that the hard way. <laughs> A lot of gardeners, uh, our experience is built up from layers of mistakes. And I used to remark to my gardeners in the first couple of years that we had the most expensive compost heap in Kent. Also makes that, for an exciting compost heap because you, know, you just don't know what might turn up. Oh, and isn't that the most infuriating thing ever when you walk <laughs> past your compost heap and something is growing that, that you've thrown away because you've got frustrated with it and it's not been doing its thing. <laughs> and you think that's it you've had it you've had it and then suddenly it's on the top of the compost heap flowering almost sort of <laughs> right a few a few herbaceous plants um th this is something i posted uh the other day now this can fill some gardeners hearts with terror <laughs> uh, <laughs> um biden's integrifolia or, or heterophylla uh, i think it may even have other synonyms but um, it's a uh, herbaceous perennial, hardy herbaceous perennial. And uh, it has starry pale lemon flowers right at the end of the summer. This is taken off the plant today. It gets to about six, seven feet tall. It has um, um, fine serrated uh, lanceolate foliage, uh, but it's quite group, quite blocky. And it grows a bit like you imagine, well, like a Michaelmas daisy. So it, it's a bit of a thug, but you could do with a few thugs here and there in your garden. Uh, we always talk about all the divas, don't we? Uh, certainly 
they're the ones that we that we want to crow about because because um, uh, we've done so well with them when we know how difficult they are to grow. The difficulty with something like this Biden's integrafolia is getting it not to grow. Um, <laughs> the best thing is every single year to cut your clump in half. It's just good husbandry. Go all the way around the plant and and just reduce it by you know two thirds, or just dig the whole thing out and just plant a bit back because it will be back. Um, and uh, and so it's a hard one to kill. But if you can give it um, a nice bit of west sun uh, in November, it will glow in a border like no other plant in your garden will. There's another called um, is it Hannay's lemon drop, which uh, which is a a gold coloured with a white tip. That's disgusting. I mean, that... <laughs> I love a strong opinion. Love a strong opinion on the Talking Dirty podcast. <laughs> I have, you know, I, my Lou tells me I have to rein it in. I, I have an opinion on almost everything. And, um, but I am, I am definitely for, for changing my opinion. And, and sometimes I go out the way to change my opinion. Now, a good example of that, let me find it. Um, this is Fuchsia hatchbackii from Brazil, and uh, it has very willow-like leaves, which are, are dark green and, and quite coarse. Um, so it, it's semi-evergreen or, or virtually evergreen um, if you're very mild. But um, I really, really dislike fuchsias uh, in a big way uh, on so many levels until I started growing species fuchsias. And, uh, and then I realized just how wonderful a group of plants they actually are. And, um, and, and so what's the point of having a mind if you can't change it? Uh, <laughs> and so I went out of my way uh, to find plants that, that, that might change my opinion. But um, fuchsias were that plant that my, that my granddad grew and the little ballerinas in their little tutu Hanging in hanging baskets, hanging baskets already. Hello, um, not for me. Uh, and you know they should have died a long time ago. Um, uh, wall wall baskets, maybe they have a perp. Hanging baskets, no, I don't. Um, I'm saying that now, but I'm going to introduce you to a plant in a minute that looks amazing in a hanging basket. So I'm a contradiction in terms. I, I can't. <laughs> I'm, I'm chaotic like my garden quite often. And uh, so fuchsia hatchbackii, uh, the, the wonderful um, berries that they form, which I'm told all fuchsias are edible. Yeah. So this is a shrub that it, they say it can get up to about eight feet. In my experience, um, growing it, um, whether it's been in part shade or whether it's been in full sun, it never gets bigger than about five feet for me. Uh, and um, it does about the same in its width, three or four feet, maybe five. So it's arching and sprawling uh, and, and very willow-like. Uh, I've got and, it against the north wall outside my potting shed, and it's at the top of the wall, which is nearly 12 feet now. Um, no, that's incredible. Yeah, it, does, it does, it does. And I was just sort of thinking when you were talking about fuchsias, and I know and I understand entirely your love-hate relationship with them because you get... I mean, they became little ballerinas and then they became, shall we say, very obese ballerinas uh, <laughs> with bigger and bigger and bigger tutus. Um, so I went the other way and I went to the macrophylla type, the microphylla or macrophylla, how you say it, 
with the tiny little le little leaves and flowers. And I mean, they are adorable. One favorite is, is quite popular now. It's called Lottie Hobby. And Lottie Hobby last winter in January here was covered with flowers and covered with leaves. It's got several other forms of it, but the best one I like is outside my kitchen door on in the east facing wall, but it's in a shelter courtyard and it's called Silver Lining. And Silver Lining has these lovely silvery gray leaves um, and tiny little bright, bright pink flowers, almost like pointless paintings. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, that's it. I'm going to be looking that up. <laughs> I, I, you know, I never, I'm, I mean, I'm always excited to show and share plants with people, but I'm also excited to hear about new ones. Yeah. You know, that's it. Wonderful, wonderful. That's what but, you're here for. <laughs> yeah, I, and fuchsias for me uh, have been a real love hate. Now this is because we wouldn't have had this the other day, um, and, and it's not salvia amistad because it kind of looks a bit like it. It's it's amistad on steroids. It's uh, a gowanatica called black and blue. Um, so the the calyx is is a, a real inky blue, and then the flower is um, is a paler movie blue um, but look at the that's one stem and uh, and and so they have these sort of chip they're surprisingly hardy they have uh, and I was the first time we ever dug it up I was incredibly surprised to find these tubers underground from the Gowan Atticas at their roots obviously a storage vessel sort of like dahlias but harder and and round in amongst the roots um, but the Gowan Atticas, Gowan Atticas can come up to about eight feet tall they're quite sprawling they need a bit of um guidance and being a, a bit a bit tough treatment so the hampton hack is something we do we sort of pinch them out uh in early july when we come back from hampton court and are feeling uh like the garden's looking good but it's um it's not looking like one of those show gardens at hampton court and i guess that's <laughs> why people do the chelsea chop as well isn't it we start we come back thinking to ourselves oh god we've got to try better <laughs> Uh, and that is one stem with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, with 10 flowers, uh, 10 flower spikes on it. And it is, well, it's no, it's December. Uh, so that's quite incredible. Uh, obviously, it's been in a sheltered uh, corner, um, but, um, but still, even if it wasn't, it would, it would still be trying its very hardest to flower uh, and has done for, for quite some time. There is another salvia. Where are you? <laughs> Come on, my friend. Hiding uh, this somewhere. One, this one has a wonderful scent to it. Um, the involucrata. Uh, and this is, um, this is Bethelii. Now, now, I've grown Bhutan, and I've grown the species, and I've grown Hadspun. Um, there's, there doesn't seem to be a lot in them to me. Uh, I, I mean, and I call myself a plantsman, so maybe I'm just not seeing something, and I'm not as good as I think I am. Uh, <laughs> Might be, might have something to do slightly. Um, there is a slight color tone change, um, or maybe, and this does happen sometimes, you buy a plant in good faith and it's not what you think it is. Um, somebody's made a mistake somewhere down the line. Um, they have these, uh, this, this lovely, deliciously scented foliage. Um, if you accident, the stems can be quite brittle. So if you accidentally um, step on a bit of it, they, they often break off, um, but they do admit uh, quite a sweet, not quite pineapple, but certainly a sweet odour from the leaves. And, uh, and, and the flowers, um, where the flowers come out of the calyx, they're, they're often um, hairy on their tips. 
and uh, and it just gives the overall appearance and they arc um, and they arch and so this isn't a, a particularly upright form so it's perfect for the edge of a border or where it can have something to lean on um, and, uh, and and so the whole clump is about about six feet tall but easily just as wide so it needs a bit of room but surprisingly hardy uh, I don't know if you grow any of these I'm sure you do Alan actually um, yeah I, yeah we're great salvia lovers here. Um, I grow a variety of involucrator called uh, Mulberry Jam. Oh, it's much deeper coloured, isn't it? Well, a little bit, but I think the flowers are slightly thinner than they are on, on straight involucrator. Um, but, you know, the difference really is minimal. And I, I sometimes wonder when we get these different for named forms, whether it's somebody with a bit of nouse perhaps who's now well known in the gardening world and wants to push their form <laughs> i mean it's business isn't it yeah i mean these are surprisingly hardy for me i don't know about your, yourself do, do yeah. you lose any of these or the... no no involucrator always comes back as does guaranitica which you just showed a little while ago you know i love big plants i know that people seem to be quite afraid of a big plant I'd always plant a, a big thing in a small space. I, people comment a lot to me uh, when they used to visit Salutation, but also with my new garden, that I'm not afraid to plant a big plants and big groups of plants uh, to give impact, real impact. Did they tell you you were brave? <laughs> 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 well, now, it, interestingly, with, with the exotics, uh, and I'll talk about a couple of those now, um, the, the gentleman, the piece of land that we bought was very kindly sold to us uh, by uh, somebody that we knew, but not very well. And he often pops in because he still owns the land next door and he's got a small holding there. And whenever he stands in the jungle, he just looks around and says, I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I, I don't understand what's, what's going on here. And I said, oh, because he's another Steve. I said, well, Steve, that means I'm on to something because, you know, you're old, so you don't get it. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm obviously <laughs> dicing with death. <laughs> he loves the long border, but when it comes to the jungle, he, he's just flummoxed. He doesn't at all understand the objective. Uh, and uh, I said, it's all about just wonderful, great big monster plants and, and plant communities supporting each other that are you know, gardening on the edge of hardiness uh, and the edge of toughness in Britain. In, in fact, many of them just have no business whatsoever growing in the British Isles. Um, so this is a canna. I don't know what colour you describe that as. It's a sort of a pink, tubulous, bell-like hanging flowers. It's canna uh, emanii, completely sterile. So it never produces any seed. And, you, and so it's hard to find or harder to find for sale. And when you do see it for sale, it can cost a few quid. Now that's partly because you can't raise it from seed and partly because the rhizomes are quite tightly packed. And so it's quite tricky to propagate. Um, I, I don't find it particularly tricky, but uh, this is what people have said to me. Uh, I obviously have an affinity with it. And it, they have these wonderful, big, rich green paddle-like leaves um, that rocket out of the ground to about eight or nine feet. And then these pendulous pink flowers, rich pink, that, you, that dangle and you can look up into, depending on how tall you are, of course. But even me at six foot three, by the end of the summer, I am looking up into uh, these flowers. It's just the most wonderful 
exotic canners, I think, if you, if you want to start and you're not into exotics yet, um, they're so easy. You want to start with something that's easy. You don't want to be put off by growing something that perhaps is too difficult and then you give up because you get disheartened. Yeah. Try with something that you get a huge amount of reward from first and then get hooked onto other things later on because there'll be loads, I can assure everybody listening. Um, I, I, the thing I love about this is it's the only pendulous canner that, that I've come across. Uh, we're not even really trying, but uh, at the nursery, we currently have uh, on our list, we did a species count of every plant we're holding on the piece of land already. So we're not quite three years in, and we've got 1,700 different species and cultivars of plant. I'm not really trying to kind of, I am, I'm showing off now, but I'm not really trying to brag, but I wanted to collect a, a base list so that we know what we've got. Um, but we've got about 27 different kinds of canner uh, and we're not even really collecting canners. It just happens because you, you find a canner for different situations, everything from pots and containers like canner brilliant, which is not too large, um, through to new introductions like golden ore, which is the rich golden yellow and dark purple foliage, right through to these big monsters like Aridiflora or, or Amanii, uh, and um, the Musifolia grande, which, which very, very rarely flowers. That is so uh, graceful. Might as well delve into a few dahlias for you. So I've got a, a dahlia tuber. Now this is a species dahlia called Merkii, and I've got next to it, this is um, a small tuber of a cultivated form called Dovegrove, uh, which, which forms quite small tubers actually, and, and quite often um, it is reluctant to produce anything of a tuber. And it's always surprises me when you dig tubers up from different varieties of dahlias, what a vast difference there is. Like magenta star, uh, the most wonderful dark leaf dahlia, a quite a big dahlia, six, seven feet tall quite often. And it's wonderful star-like pink flower, rich, deep pink flower from it. Um, and then you dig it up and the tubers are are thin fingered and very fine and small. And you think, oh God, I'm gonna have trouble overwintering this as a tuber. And then you dig up other species dahlias like Merkii. And they often have very long stems, um, the, the roots and at the end of the root dangling about 10 inches, even up to a foot away is often these sort of tennis ball like storage organs, the tubers. And so actually Merkii can be a real devil you're better off actually if you if you buy a species dahlia, whether it be a tree dahlia um, or one of the species ones like Merkia, you're better off planting it like a herbaceous perennial and leaving it alone there and then maybe taking cuttings off it in the spring or collecting seed. But if you want to actually dig them up, um, I mean, potting them is quite a job, <laughs> even if you choose to, um, to, to divide them up. But you must have an eye. That's the key. If, you, if you're digging up the tubers, if they... If you dig up tubers and lots of people, I've had students that have done this with me and they're not being very studious about how they're getting the fork in amongst the tubers and they dig up bits and they break bits off and, and bits fall off. And they think, well, that's great. Yes, yeah, so we, we're, gonna, we're gonna get hundreds of dahlias out of this. I said, no, that, that bit of root, we just throw it on the compost heap now because there's, there's no growing tip at the end. So there's no chance of it producing one. Talking about species dahlias, I've grown one which I grew, I bought, I bought as a cutting last year called Dahlia Campanulata. Do you know that? I do, yes. 
It's very late flowering. It wouldn't flower outside. I've got it in the greenhouse. It's hit the roof and its heads are hanging down. They're like white, pale pink paper handkerchiefs hanging with their pointed petals looking down at you, just, just like a hand like that. I mean, they're absolutely splendid. Um, and I have an ambition and I don't know whether I'll ever do it, but I, I would like to have a greenhouse that is is called a winter garden in itself, because lots of these um, these sort of dahlias, the species dahlias, they need that extra long growing season. And the only way we can get it is under glass and some winter flowering salvias as well. I mean, I've got a couple that, that live outside and they're hardy enough, but they don't flower with any gusto because the weather spoils the flowers. But just that little bit of shelter, not masses of heat, but just that little bit of shelter. Please do that. Please make a winter garden yeah. glass house. <laughs> do you know, we, we are, um, we're doing it in a very small scale with a polytunnel. So we, for the nursery, we put two polytunnels up next to each other. And one of them, we've uh, we split it. It's an 80 foot by 21 foot polytunnel. We split it in half. The front half is planted as an arid desert garden. And the back half is planted as a jungle garden. And already both of them are full. And we now have more plants. We're not quite sure where they're going. And what we really could do is something like Alan's talking about is because we need more height so that they're not pressing on the ceiling of the glass house. And we yeah. need a bit more room to let them um, really show themselves off. Couldn't agree. Couldn't agree more. It's lovely to be able to extend that season a bit. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, we've got something called Uriops pectinatus, which is silver leaves and the yellow daisies, several forms of it. But I've got it in the greenhouse in the Diamond Jubilee wall garden, which is not heated at all, but just that little bit of shelter and it's flowering away like mad in there. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. But of course, you know, the, the problem is with lots of these winter flowers, it is the flowers that are fragile. It's not the fact that the plants are not hardy, it's the flowers that are fragile. And so that's what you really want to try and protect. Now, while we're on the subject of dahlias I'll, um, uh, and species dahlias, I've got um, dahlia excelsa with me. Now, this is a tree dahlia, which uh, can come up to about nine or ten feet tall, a bit like in, well, so it, it's in its leaf form from a, set, from a stem with a petiole with breaking leaves, um, like an ash leaf, if you can imagine that. Um, and, uh, and, and so it's, but it's finer in all its parts than Imperialis, but it will be in flower normally by late August, reliably, uh, if you're in East Kent. Actually, if you're in Kent, I, I imagine, do you grow this one, Alan? Yes, I do. But that starts flowering in late July, beginning of August. Yes, yeah, yeah, for, for us too. And, um, and actually, as we've noticed as the season goes on, it can often get deeper and deeper. The colour becomes deeper and deeper. I think that's old, don't you? That's it. Yes, yeah. That's what we, we found the same thing as well, which is just, uh, it's a wonderful attribute. Uh, and just at the end of the season, when you're thinking, well, it can't go on much longer and it's just looking glorious, absolutely smothered in flower at the moment. I took this couple of stems off and you can see I've had these in the house for a few days now and they're holding surprisingly well, but not wonderfully. But th they're always simple. Oh, and I've lost the flower. There. <laughs> they're, they're always simple, single flowers. Uh, and my my hope um, with the uh, with the tunnel having species dahlias in there is to try some backwards breeding with species dahlias into some of the cultivated forms and see what we get out of them. That's that's yeah. what I want to do. Um, this is one of my other tree dahlias, which uh, actually is is about the same height as it is wide, 
Um, when I bought it, it was a new collection by uh, Nick Mesa from Pan Global, uh, collected it in Northeast Mexico. And I bought it on the merits of the foliage alone, which is ju it's just enormous. I bought it as Nova, um, but it's since been named, uh, and it's a bit of a mouthful, uh, Tamaulipana. And it's got, it's got a very simple lilac flower with, a, with a, a bright white fading to yellow in the center. And it's not, and it is just flowering now. And for a single, this has been indoors for five days uh, and, it, and it's holding really well. And it is the most remarkable foliage that species dahlia that I've come across. I grow it just for the foliage alone. So that's my, uh, my, my dahlias. Now, um, I wanted to share with you only a couple more things, I promise. <laughs> Um, We're I, never I, ones to turn down show and tell. I just love how I'm sure there's more every episode. It is amazing. <laughs> this is a bamboo I want to share with you. And, and uh, you may know it. This is a Berinda. Uh, this is Berinda papyrifera and it's Stapleton or it's something known as Chris Stapleton 1046. Uh, that's the particular form that, that we have, which has these intensely blue gray combs. and because bamboos get such a bad rep, it's unbelievable. I mean, I, I love them. And if you've got room for them, you should include them in your garden 100%. That's my opinion. Uh, particularly if you've got an exotic garden, I wouldn't be without them because they're virtually evergreen. It's a very, very hard winter that, um, that sees a bamboo beaten to the ground. And, uh, and then often you're crying in your beer because you've lost so many other things. The bamboo is <laughs> probably going to be the last thing on your mind. Uh, but, but this Berinda is incredibly well behaved. And what I always tell people is that if you're not spending good money on a small bamboo, then the chances are it's probably going to be a thug because propagators, if it's hard to propagate, if nurserymen find it difficult or it's slow, uh, then there's a good chance that it will be expensive. If it's very quick growing, well, then they can produce lots of it and it will be cheaper. It's business isn't it so, so the blue combs are the reason to grow it alone for me we, we started off with a very small plant um in a, in a sort of uh, eight lead, eight or ten liter pot at about four feet and uh, now six years on it's about uh, 10 feet tall but it really isn't more than about a meter across in any direction uh, so, so it's very well behaved. And I think the Berinda tribe quite often are. If you like Fargesias, which are, they have quite a graceful elegance to them. Then there's also a Berinda nugenensis, which has a similar look with a bluey comb to it. Not quite as intense as this uh, Chris Stapleton form, but, um, but well worth it as an architectural statement in your garden. And now I wanted to finish um, on Plectranthus as, as one of my, my favourites. Uh, and it's a deeply unsellable plant. <laughs> uh, I think people are always scared by them. They're, they're, most of them hail from South Africa. And uh, this particular one is called Ernstii. And you can see at the bottom, it, it has these um, swollen bases to the stems, these cordex roots, which, um, which is normally a good sign that you want to keep it dry because they tend to, to rot. Uh, things like baobabs, you know, they're the most famous one, aren't they, with the big yeah. uh, swollen uh, base. Um, so, so Plectranthus ernstii, this is almost um, uh, sort of, you know, sub-Saharan, really. It's, uh, 
it, it's a gr great in an alpine garden or in a uh, in a really free draining arid garden would be be wonderful with these little white flowers. Most of them have really scented foliage. This would even be a fantastic pot subject because it only gets to about a foot, 18 inches high, I guess. I mean, you know, a little taller, depends on how mean you're treating it. The thing about Plectranthus is um, a bit like pelagoniums and lots of pelagoniums hail from South Africa as well. You can treat them pretty much the same, except they like the shade. They, they actively seek it quite often. And um, the first time I saw a Plectranthus was um, at Great Digster, and it was a number of years ago, and it was uh, it was Ciliatus, it was this one, and uh, and look at that flag. So they're really closely allied to salvias. So people that say that oh I don't like Plectranthus, well that means you don't like salvias. I mean who doesn't like a salvia? <laughs> and I'll tell you the big difference. This is fructicosis. Now you can sort of see um, that instead of the tongue. Uh, of the flower facing forward, sticking out, poking out at you like salvias do. The tongue is curved backwards. It kicks backwards like a spur. And so that's where it got its name, spur flower. And fructicosis, which is, is this one, which is a sort of subshrub up to about a meter, maybe even 1.2 round, um, covered in pale lilac blue flowers. There are white forms around, there are pink flowered forms around. Um, this is the, one of the first ones that was grown in Britain. The Victorian head gardeners used to use fructicosis uh, as, a, uh, as a temperature indicator. So this, this was the canary in the mine. They used to put this out with all the really tender exotics that they had, because they perhaps didn't have very reliable thermometers. Um, they'd pop this out with all of their very rare and special uh, exotics. And when the temperatures drop below 10 degrees for more than a few nights, the whole plant takes on a kind of orangey hue all over it, which is a great indicator to say, right, time to bring all of our most special things in. Um, you can grow them like pelagoniums. They'll root in water. They're, they're a gardener's dream if you're a beginner. They are mostly autumn and winter flowering, with the exception, this is um, Parviflora, this is Limplep 1. And uh, now this, without any cajoling or coaxing whatsoever, is in flower in July. So July and August, it's a solid, and it has a bright pale blue flower. Uh, and it makes a really good mound at about 18 inches as a, as a big tussock. Uh, so, so it's um, a great pot subject. We used it in our Hampton Court display in 2018. So we did an exotic display in 2018 and in 2019. Uh, and in 2019, we did such a large exotic display where we used masses of Plectranthus. Some we had to force into flower early, but Limplet one for both those years and always does is reliably into flower really early. A lot of people would say grow them for their foliage. And actually they're probably quite right if you're growing them for the summer garden. They really are very happy in shade. They're incredibly drought tolerant and they'll work brilliantly in hanging baskets. <laughs> okay. And you can see this is um, verticillata. This is uh, pink surprise, leathery, small, rotund leaves. Now, I got my nucleus of my collection from a lady called Janet Elliott at Old Hall Plants um, a number of years ago. And when I went to her house, she was growing uh, verticillatus, pink surprise, 
in a in a large hanging basket. She had a spiral staircase and it was hanging at the top of the spiral staircase. And it came out of the basket, went all the way down the two floors to the floor. That's something like 20 feet below. It was the most incredible um, plant I'd, I'd ever seen as a house plant uh, outside of a botanic garden. <laughs> I'd love to see a trial on them. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, it would be good. We'll have to convince someone like Dibley's if they watch this. <clears throat> um, we should have a trial in a nice big greenhouse. <laughs> I did have a nice, uh, I did have a very large order of begonias from them this year. <clears throat> oh, we, can, oh, we, can, we, can, we can turn the thumb screws. <laughs> Well, do you know, I, uh, I've got so much inspiration, Steve. I, thank you so much for gathering all of this material and also sort of holding fire and keeping it like an aspic for three days so that we could, uh, we could finally get all of this amazing show and tell. Um, uh, we must all have so much extra Flomo now. Um, for anyone who's never watched one of these before, Flomo is that kind of floral or plant-based fear of missing out. And we always make sure we, we squeeze it in to the podcast because it's how we live our lives always seeing plants and wanting to add them to our gardens there are so many things you've mentioned today Steve that I now want um I'm going to have like half of the plant list from this episode adding to my uh, my wish list but before we even got into this episode I had been coveting Eryngium pandanifolium from your Instagram uh, so that had already been screenshotted on my phone I love Eryngiums and I think I already am hankering after Guatemalense, um, but I think maybe I just need them both, really, if I can find space for them. So that's my Flomo. Uh, Steve, what are you bringing to the Flomo party? The list is, is so long um, that, that I can't... Do you know what? I, I lost Strobilanthes. I love them, absolutely adore them, the Persian shield plant. And we'd actually got quite successful at propagating them. But when Salutation's demise occurred, Unfortunately, uh, there was no one to look after them. We didn't have the, the prop unit, all the rest of it. So I, I didn't have it. And it is at the top of my list. I adore it. I had this wonderful idea to use it with spider plants, the variegated spider plants, the two of them together in a summer bedding scheme. I thought they'd just zing. And I'm desperate to lay my fingers on it again. Well, don't you got head up to East Ruston. You can probably pinch Allen's. <laughs> There are very few plants which are actually pearlescent in their foliage, and it's pearlescent. Oh, it's gorgeous. It pearlescent. You're absolutely right. Now, I mean, I haven't really done very much with mine to encourage it to do anything, but for some reason it likes where it is in the Pelagonium house, sits in the middle on the table. Um, and I've heard several people, how does that bugger do that? <laughs> how does he grow that? Because it's, it is a difficult thing to grow, but I agree with you. It, it would look nice with some variegated foliage, I think. Right, Alan, what's your Flomo? Well, it's, it's, this is going to sound strange because I'd never thought of doing it until listening to Steve today and, and he's convinced me. It was the seed head that convinced me, really. And that is Asphodeline lutea. Um, I'm going to be growing lots of that on the periphery of the desert where we get some sandy banks and things like that. And I don't know why I haven't thought of it, but I can see those gobstoppers. I just love the idea of those. The big, big green gobstoppers. And then when they burst open the seeds, it's what's not to like? Come on. It'll certainly be a talking point. <laughs> well, I need I need lots of it. That's the other thing Steve's installed instilled in me is the fact that, you know, sometimes you need to be bold with plants. If a plant really speaks to you, perhaps, and it, it's good enough to be on its own, then fine. But quite often, you know, if you get something that 
it benefits from having neighbours, like rivers of it running through. Um, and that's quite something, actually. Most people don't do that, as Steve said earlier on. Um, perhaps, you know, it's a little bit of something to think about in your garden, have a slightly bigger drift of something. Well, Steve, if this is the level of show and tell we get uh, bordering on December, I can't even imagine what it will be like if we invite you back again. We'll have to block a whole week out uh, to, to talk to you about your show and tell. But will you come back at a slightly warmer time of year? Absolutely love to and share lots of herbaceous perennials from the from the main from our main border, perhaps. That'd be that'd be, uh, idea. be magic. Idea. Yeah. It's been such I mean my my face hurts. This happens sometimes. I smile so much over the course of these podcasts and my cheeks end up hurting, but it's been joyful. Steve, thank you. I mean, have a wonderful winter. Enjoy your land and um, we'll catch up with you in 2022. Thank you so much. Thank you both. That's been brilliant. Happy Love gardening. Happy gardening. <laughs> hey, Fordis here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening, and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time. Hey.